Hosea chapter four, starting at verse one, it says, hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth, no faithful love and no knowledge of God in the land. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. For this reason, the land mourns and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the animals, along with the wild animals and the birds of the sky, even the fish of the sea disappear. But let no one dispute, let no one argue, for my case is against you, priest. You will stumble by day. The prophet will also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from serving as my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your sons. The more they multiply, the more they sin against me. I will change their honor into disgrace. They feed on the sin of my people and they have an appetite for their iniquity. The same judgment will happen to both people and priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat, but not be satisfied. They will be promiscuous, but not multiply for they have abandoned their devotion to the Lord. Promiscuity, wine and new wine take away one's understanding. My people consult their wooden idols and the divining rods inform them. For a spirit of promiscuity leads them astray. They act promiscuously in disobedience to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and they burn offerings on the hills and under oaks, poplars, and terebinths because their shade is pleasant. And so your daughters act promiscuously and your daughters-in-law commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters or or your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go off with prostitutes and make sacrifices with cult prostitutes. People without discernment are doomed. Israel, if you act promiscuously, don't let Judah become guilty. Do not go to Gilgal or make a pilgrimage to Bethaven, and do not swear an oath as the Lord lives. For Israel is as obstinate as a stubborn cow. Can the Lord now shepherd them like a lamb in an open meadow? Ephraim is attached to idols. Leave him alone. When the drinking is over, they turn to promiscuity. Israel's leaders fervently love disgrace. A wind with its wings will carry them off and they will be ashamed of their sacrifices. So hear this priest, pay attention, house of Israel, listen, royal house, for the judgment applies to you because you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. Rebels are deeply involved in slaughter. I will be a punishment for all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, you have acted promiscuously. Israel is defiled. Their actions do not allow them to return to their God for a spirit of promiscuity is among them and they do not know the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. Both Israel and Ephraim stumble because of their iniquity. Even Judah will stumble with them. They go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but do not find him. He is withdrawn from them. They betrayed the Lord. Indeed, they gave birth to illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them along with their fields. So blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Raise the war cry in Bethaven. Look behind you, Benjamin. Ephraim will become a desolation on the day of punishment. I will announce what is certain. I announce what is certain among the tribes of Israel. The princes of Judah are like those who move boundary markers. I will pour out my fury on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, for he is determined to follow what is worthless. So I am like rot to Ephraim and like decay to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness in Judah, his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria and sent a delegation to the great king. But he cannot cure you or heal your wound. For I'm like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Yes, I will tear them to pieces and depart. I will carry them off and no one can rescue them. I will depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. They will search for me in their distress. And the prophet Hosea says, come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us and he will heal us. 
He has wounded us and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days. And on the third day, he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. Let us strive to know the Lord. His appearance, God's appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. This is the word of the Lord. I can take your seats. I ask you to join me for another moment of prayer. Father, we give thanks for your word, for all that it teaches us about you. One of the things that we know from this passage is that you hate sin and you judge it. So God, I pray and ask that as we read it, that we would be led to hatred for sin, that we see your hatred and grow in hatred ourselves and that we know that you love righteousness and grow in our love for righteousness and then look to Christ as the only one who can grant us any righteousness. This passage holds out an invitation for us to return to you, God, our father. I know that we can't go on our own because we ourselves go with sin. But when we go in Christ, we go having been cleansed and made new and being seen as righteous and pure from sin because of him offering us his righteousness and purity. So we give great praise to him today. We thank you for him. And Father, we pray that as we read this passage, we would see how this even points to him and what he would come to do, and that we rejoice in it because we have confidence today that he's done it on all of our behalf. Oh, we thank you for our Savior, God. And for him pulling us out of the most wretched of situations. And Father, I pray that as I attempt to preach toward the end of making this clear, that you would give strength and grace where grace is needed. I need you physically. I need you mentally, Father. I need you spiritually. I don't want to stand up here and and deliver an address of words on a page. Father, I I believe that this this hour that you've set apart for us as your people is for the supernatural word of yours to pierce our hearts and lead us and call us into worship of you. So I avail myself to be a tool of yours, and I pray that you use me toward that end. I pray that if there's anybody in the room who doesn't know you, that isn't trusting in you with all of their lives, with all of their hearts, looking to Christ as their Savior, God, I pray that the truth of the gospel would grip them this morning, that they be led to repentance and faith in who Christ is and what he's done and how that enables us to return to you. The very place that we long to be, in your presence, we find access to that place because of and through Christ Jesus. So I want to herald him today. I pray that you would help me, that you use me toward that end. I pray and preach for your glory, dependence upon your spirit, and in the name of your son. Amen. Well, the construction of the Panama Canal was a feat that many thought would be impossible. Uh, The need for a channel on which ships could travel from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean and vice versa without having to go the entire distance around all the southern tip of South America was an abundantly clear need. 
but the means by which this could be accomplished was not abundantly clear. In order to construct such a canal, one would have to literally cut a pathway through the Panamanian mountains that made up the isthmus of Panama. These mountains towered 80 feet above sea level. So the thought of, of chopping them down to the point that the, that the Pacific and Atlantic oceans could, could meet in a water channel down the middle of them seemed absurd to many people. So, of course, when America and France and Colombia were considering trying to make it happen, uh, they wanted to seek out an engineer who was known to be somewhat of a canal guru. Uh, his name was Ferdinand de Lesseps. He had become somewhat famous for building the Suez Canal in Egypt. He was a confident man. He insisted that he'd be the one to accomplish the project, and he showed up with this confidence that towered even higher than the mountains that he would attempt to cut through. Well, once he gets on the scene in Panama and he and his team begin the construction, that mountain of confidence would eventually plummet to an even greater degree of embarrassment. Lessips found the project to be much more difficult than he initially thought it would be. And after being on the job for about eight years, he'd seen many of his workers die. He cut less than 10% of the necessary debris from the mountaintops, and his failure resulted in one of the largest bankruptcies in all of history. So this obviously left people asking the question, can the Panama Canal actually be completed? Well, as Theodore Roosevelt stepped into the American presidency, he was convinced that the canal could and most certainly should be built. So America bought the project from the French and Roosevelt, uh, he, he took an approach of determination to, to see this thing come to an end. But Roosevelt obviously didn't oversee the project himself. He went and hired one of the best engineers of his day. He made John Wallace chief engineer of the project. Uh, John Wallace showed up with little confidence. He succumbed to the same obstacles as Ferdinand de Lesseps. He made very little progress on top of the, uh, the progress that Lesseps had made. And he submitted his letter of resignation after being on the job for only two years. Well, still determined to see the canal happen, Roosevelt goes and hires John Frank Stevens. John Frank Stevens was an engineer's engineer. He was, he was a kind of man's man. He, he was one that people knew would be the right man for the job. He had this reputation for, for not just being a good engineer, but for being one of the top project managers of his day. This man had built some of the toughest railroads in all of the American railroad industry. So people knew that he would be the one for the job. Stevens shows up, he inherits the mess that was the yet-to-be-completed Panama Canal, but like those who sat in his seat before him, Stevens resigned after less than 20 months on the job. Well, Roosevelt, at this point, is taken back to the drawing board, and he's saying to himself, like, I, I, I know that this thing can be done, and I've got to show my country that it's not the project that is the problem, but it's the leaders who've been overseeing the project. So Roosevelt seeks out one who would not only be a high quality builder of canals, but also a high quality leader of people. His name was George Washington Gothels. He was a commanding officer in the American military. And when he arrived on the scene in Panama, he brought with him his meticulous attention to detail, his, his demand for order, his desire for maximal efficiency, and of course, his highly valuable skills of leadership. Gothel saw the completion of the canal in 1914. 
And Theodore Roosevelt's hire of Goethe's holds out an important lesson for us today. It holds out the simple lesson that leadership plays a significant role in the outcome of a situation and in the direction of a people. But I mean, this is a lesson that y'all already knew. You don't need me to stand here and tell you this today. Everybody knows this to be true. Like this, this lesson's truth is the reason that college and grad students try to hurry up and, and register for their classes when a semester's starting before all the good professors are gone. This lesson's truth is the reason that a movie with the best actors but a mediocre director doesn't do as well as a movie with mediocre actors but a world-class director. Uh, this is the reason, as much as I hate to say it from this pulpit, uh, that so many of our nation's top high school football players continue to commit to play college football at the University of Alabama. <laughs> Pastor Brogan can edit that part out of the recording. But y'all see what I'm getting at, right? Is the reason we all want the best bosses, the reason we strive to be good parents, the reason we look for churches that have faithful pastors. And I want to suggest to us today that in the book of Hosea, friends, this is the reason that when the people of God have ventured so far from right devotion to God, God not only sends rebuke to the people, but God also sends rebuke to the priest. I've titled this sermon, A Case Against Fallen People with Faulty Priest. We've been studying the book of Hosea for the last three weeks, and we've seen that the people of God are rebelling against God in his ways. They're completely disregarding all that God says is good for them to do, and, and instead they're living their own way, and they're even worshiping idols instead of worshiping gods, instead of worshiping God. Well, God raises up a prophet by the name of Hosea. Hosea prophesies against the people's unfaithfulness. And Hosea also provides a picture of their unfaithfulness through his own life. He's married to a woman named Gomer who leaves him multiple times to go be a prostitute. And God speaks through Hosea's biography to say to his people, like, like hey, when, when, when you sin against me, my people, you're like this unfaithful wife who's leaving the love of her husband to go live a life of whoredom. You can go back and listen to the first two sermons on our website if you want to see what God teaches through chapters one through three. Uh, but this week we come to chapter four and Hosea prophesies to the unfaithful people in a way that rebukes not only the people who are sinning against God, but the priests who led them further into their sin against God. It's my hope this morning that as we study chapters four through six, we can all feel the frustration of God about his people living unfaithfully and about the leading them further. Look at verses one through three of chapter four. Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. For this reason, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the wild animals and the birds of the sky, even the fish of the sea, disappear. So in the very first part of this statement from God, we're confronted with the fact that God brings a case against the nation of Israel. He brings a case against his unfaithful people. That, the Hebrew word here for case is, is translated as it is because it has the connotation of a legal dispute. These chapters are almost like a court case where God brings this indictment against his people for their unfaithfulness, and Hosea is acting as a lawyer who brings the indictment into court. And so God brings this case against the inhabitants of the land. That's him addressing all of Israel because the sinfulness is so widespread among them. But God brings the case, and he begins laying out the specifics of what he's charging them with. And if I were to sum up the first charge that God brings in verses 1 through 3, I would say it's the charge of willful ignorance. It's a charge of willful ignorance on Israel's part. 
God says to them in verse two that there is no truth, no faithful love, no knowledge of God in the land. And we want to remember here that these are the very things that should be present in God's relationship with Israel. Like Israel is, is, is God's covenant people, right? That means that he has chosen them and set them apart to be in this exclusive, intimate, closely binding relationship with himself. When I talked about covenants a few weeks ago, I explained that, that, that ancient covenants were understood to have this kind of legal binding and legal responsibility for both parties to uphold. Well, that is why God brings this case against Israel. It's because they're not upholding their end of the covenant. I mean, if you go back and look at all the biblical covenants in Scripture, you'll notice that every one of them included an expression of God's love to his people, a revelation of God's truth to his people, and a set of instructions for how they could continue growing in their knowledge and love for God and his truth. Well, truth, faithfulness, and love, and knowledge are the very things that God says his people are rejecting. They don't not have it because God has failed to make himself known. The covenants did that for them. The reason these things are lacking is because they themselves have failed to know what God has made known. And we'll see in a moment that it's because the priests have failed to take what God has made known and deliver it to the people. And so the people, instead of knowing and worshiping the one true God, they're out worshiping idols and knowing false gods. And God says it's their fault. He brings this case against them. Because they lack the truth and and faithful love and knowledge that God has basically sat right in their laps through his consistent covenantal pursuit of them, God brings this charge and he says, it's your fault that you're not knowing me. And I can't help but wonder today, beloved, if God might bring a similar case against us at times. We're the covenant people of God today. And because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we have absolutely zero excuse to lack truth, faithful love, and knowledge of God. But I can't help but wonder, friends, if if we, like Israel, reject what God has sat right in front of us. I mean, for us, it's it's, it's all compiled into one book, right? Like like we've got God's word. He's revealed his character and truth and the way to faithful love and knowledge of him all in his word. And we're commanded to, to meditate on his word. And so often, we don't. And I don't take this as me trying to to guilt you into doing quiet times. Take this as me trying to encourage you into quality time with the God of the universe. And here's why I want to encourage you in that way. Because the opposite is a kind of willful ignorance. Similar to that other kind of willful ignorance that that happens when we're so tuned in and, and influenced by the things of the world that society and culture starts to tell us what's true. What society says is true, we start to take as true to the point of even questioning what God has said is truth. Let's not forget that Israel learned this whole, this idol worship thing that God is, is, is rebuking them about. They learned that from the idolatrous nations around them. So here's my encouragement this morning. Be careful how closely you engage the strategies and structures of society and be careful how much you indulge in the works and ways of the world. We don't have to completely excuse ourselves, but beloved, we must be on guard so that we're not led toward any willful ignorance. There's that other kind of willful ignorance that happens when, when God's spirit that, that, that lives within you is, is, is compelling you in a certain way toward a certain act of righteousness. And, 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 and instead of acting on it, you choose to kind of smother that compulsion and, and to act as if it's not there because it's much easier and much more comfortable to, to do nothing at all. And it's much more fun sometimes to act in unrighteousness instead of in righteousness. 
and of willful ignorance. And believe it or not, God says that when his people choose this kind of willful ignorance, it's not only them, but it's also the people and things around them that suffer. Look back at verse two. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. For this reason, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the wild animals and the birds of the sky, even the fish of the sea disappear. So one of the ways that God will punish Israel for their rebellion is by putting an end to this abundance of provision they've seen. This was, this was during a time when, when they were experiencing great prosperity and, and, and peace. But, but verse 3 gives us a foreshadowing of what God is about to do. He's going to cut off the provision and put an end to the prosperity. And isn't this what sin has always caused to happen in the world? I mean, it's like the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, right? The creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's son to be revealed. Who does that? The creation. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and to the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves, God's people, who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So both Paul and Hosea make the point that sin has caused adverse effects in the world. And Paul says that everything around us, even nature and creation, are groaning for the day that Jesus will come back to make all of this stuff new. But here's the reason I say that your sin and unfaithfulness is a contributing factor. It's because God has his people in the world for us to be a picture of holiness against the backdrop of the world's hellaciousness. One of the biggest problems with Israel's rebellion was that they were no longer showing God's character and virtue and holiness to the world around them. One of the biggest problems with our sin and unfaithfulness is that we fail to show God's character and virtue and, and, and be faithful to, to image him to the world around us. The creation and culture groans and we fail to speak into their groaning with messages and examples of truth and knowledge and, and, and love of God like we're supposed to. When the people of God aren't knowing God, the rest of the world has no chance of getting to know God. And so we got to view our faithfulness, beloved, as, as something that, 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 that is, is more about us. It's not just about us and our personal lives and our personal state of spirituality. It's about God's glory being seen through us by those around us. It's about more than just us. We're saved into relationship with God to see others be saved into relationship with God. We get to worship him and we should be, be images of what that worship looks like to the lost world so that they want to come and join us in that worship. That's what the Lord has us here for. It's one of the things he's got us here for anyways. Well, we see that in addition to God bringing this indictment of willful ignorance, he also brings an indictment of wretched infidelity. He rebukes the people for continuing in their sinful ways after he'd already warned them several different times. But on the way to that rebuke, we see in verses four through nine that he pauses to give a very specific rebuke to the priest. Because leadership plays such a significant role in the direction of a people, God informs the priest that they're not off the hook for this rebuke. But it's actually their leadership of the people that's one of the major reasons for the rebuke. Verse 4, but let no one dispute 
Let no one argue for my case is against you, priest. You will stumble by day. The prophet will also stumble with you by night and I will destroy your mother. So God saying to both the priests and the false prophets among them, all the religious leaders of that day, that because they had led the people to stumble into sin, they themselves would be left to stumble. Doesn't matter if it's a day or night. God says these wretched leaders have led the people to stumble into wretched sin and infidelity to God. And so therefore they will stumble and their mother, meaning Israel as a whole, who has, who has produced individual sinners as children, she too will be destroyed. And then God reminds them that it's due to their rejecting knowledge of him. Verse six, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from serving as my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your sons. The more they multiply, the more they send against me. I will change their honor into disgrace. So God makes it clear the priest had failed to lead the people to, to greater degrees of knowing God. So God was revoking their priestly authority. The more priestly sons that were born, the more sinfulness there was among the people. So the priest would no longer be priest at all. This, this priestly lineage had become like a, like a gangrenous infection that was spreading all the wrong things among the people. And it was because of what we read in verse 8. They, meaning the priests, feed on the sin of my people. They have an appetite for their iniquity. So apparently the priests were not only not leading God's people in the right ways, they were also leading them in the wrong ways because they themselves were enjoying the wretched living. It says they had an appetite for the people's sin. I know I talked about this a few weeks ago, but this is the reason that the church must commit herself to calling and appointing pastors and religious leaders that have an appetite for God and godliness. It's still the case today, unfortunately, that that wolves scheme their way into church leadership and end up leading God's people down a path of unfaithfulness. And so the church must do the very best she can to appoint leaders who desire the life and godliness that God has called his people to. And those who desire to, to lead within the church, they should commit themselves to having the life and godliness that God commends before they ever step into any role of leadership. And here's why. Because when this is the case first, when, when those who lead are devoted to running hard after God, the direction they'll lead in will obviously be in a degree of growing godliness. It'll be toward increasing godliness that those who run after God lead. But it wasn't that way for the priest of Israel. And therefore God says in verse nine, the same judgment will happen to both people and priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat, but not be satisfied. They will be promiscuous, but not multiply for they have abandoned their devotion to the Lord. So the people had abandoned their devotion. They sinned and, and drank themselves into a state of stupidity. They couldn't know the Lord because their promiscuous ways and drunkenness had, had clouded their understanding. This is, is wretched infidelity against God that will be punished. And part of the punishment will be them coming to realize that the sinful living and, and the sinful sacrifices they've been making won't yield any satisfaction at all. They will eat but not be satisfied. They were promiscuously engaged in, in those sexual sacrifices made unto the false god, Baal, who, who they think is the god of fertility, but they won't be fertile. They won't have any children. Friends, their punishment for this infidelity will make them realize what I hope we all come to realize without having to be punished first. It's this. Sinful living doesn't actually satisfy, and out of worship will always leave our joy incomplete. 
sinful living doesn't actually satisfy and idol worship will always leave our joy incomplete. I mean, tuck that away, friends. You need to remember that when you're tempted to sin. Let that ring in your minds when, when some potential idol wants to pull your attention away from God. There ain't nothing in this world that can satisfy you and grant you the desires of your heart other than God. Doesn't matter how enticing it is. Doesn't matter how good you think it will make you feel. In the end, you will be left empty. Verse 13 says the people made sacrifices on mountains and under trees where the shade was pleasant. They even found comfortable places to engage in their outer worship. Like surely there was nothing wrong with it, right? Like you could be on mountaintops and in, in comfortably shaded trees feeling as good as good it gets as you worship your false gods. And if it feels good, then it must be good for me then, right? Wrong. It's a terrible mentality. How does verse 12 describe this outer worship? It says they're led astray by a spirit of promiscuity. They're acting in disobedience to God. And then what happens as a result in verse 13? Your daughters act promiscuously and your daughters-in-law commit adultery. Because this is showing us that the sin and infidelity of the people is becoming a generational thing. And now not only is it the priests who are failing to lead the nation in faithfulness to God, but the men are failing to lead their families in faithfulness. And therefore, the women, the daughters that they give themselves, the, 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 the daughters among the people, they, they give themselves to the same kind of sin as their fathers. But look at verse 14. I will not punish your daughters when they act promiscuously or your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go off with prostitutes and make sacrifices with cult prostitutes. People without discernment are doomed. Now, a disclaimer. I don't think this is God saying that women won't ultimately be held accountable for their own sin. But I do think that this is God saying that when he brings judgment upon a people for a cultural state of sin, he's looking to where it all started and to the place where it could have and should have been prevented. In a patriarchal society like that of ancient Israel, that place was the men. But hear me say this, brothers in the room. The change in society doesn't let you off the hook from the application that lays here in this verse. There is still, even in the New Testament church, an expectation for men to take up responsibility to lead their homes in righteousness and to ultimately be the leaders of righteousness even within the church. So to my married brothers in the room, here's a reminder that uh, some of you may not have heard since whenever you did your premarital counseling. The spiritual state of the woman you're married to and the kids that y'all have, that is partly your responsibility. You may say, well, well, that's not true. Like it's, it's, it's their sin. It's not my sin. It wasn't Jesus' sin either. But Jesus came and made it right for his bride. You can't do it in the exact same way as Christ. But you as a husband and father are called to reflect him by intentionally trying to push your household forward in holiness. That's what we got to do. To my unmarried brothers, you may not be married. You may not have a wife and kids at home to lead but you're still called to step up and purposely contribute to the spiritual flourishing of your church family. Like it's not that women can't contribute. They obviously can because they do. The problem occurs when they are left to be the primary or only contributors because of men being passive and not taking up responsibility to lead according to God's intent from the very origin of mankind. I mean, this is why fatherlessness in the home and, and passivity among men in general, especially within the church, some, some of the biggest problems in our day. So my brothers at Pioneer, 
Let's not be a passive group of men. Let's step up and own the responsibility to be purposeful and do all we can to see our homes and our church flourish in godliness. Husbands, don't let your wives be the only ones who disciple your kids. Don't let her be the one to, to, who's primarily out trying to evangelize your neighbors. Don't let her be the one to always initiate prayer and, and spiritual conversations with you. Lead your families in godliness. And all of us men, like, like don't let the women be the primary ones who are building community with one another, praying for church members, initiating conversations about how God is at work, offering accountability and encouragement, sharing the gospel with non-believers, loving and serving church members, volunteering to serve and meet needs when needs show up. Let's, let's, let's not allow the women to be the only ones doing those things. We can't be fooled by the fallacy of society, brothers. That's not womanly stuff to do. That is Christianly stuff to do. It's what God has called his people to. And we should wholeheartedly be giving ourselves to it and be leading and setting an example of what it looks like. But this obviously wasn't happening among the nation of Israel. And so God continues to warn them about their infidelity. In verse 15, we see this, this warning for Judah even, that's the southern nation of God's people, to not have the unfaithful ways of Israel in the north be spread among them. He says, don't go to Gilgal or beth Those are places that had previously been associated with with worship of God, but Israel had begun going there and making sacrifices to false gods. He says, don't swear an oath in the name of God like Israel does. That phrase, as the Lord lives, as we see there, that was a phrase that they used in their worship of God, where Israel had had kind of taken that phrase and mixed it with these other sayings for their idol worship. God says in verse 16 that there's obstinate as a stubborn cow. He can't shepherd them like he could a humble and dependent lamb. So God had been issuing these warnings. We saw a few weeks ago that all of Hosea's children that he had with his wife, they were given names that were purposeful statements of warning to the nation of Israel. But Israel wasn't listening. They were as immovable as an old, stubborn heifer, as some of the translations put it. But the worst thing of all, friends, is that they had become attached to their idols. Verse 17, Ephraim is attached to idols. Leave him alone. When the drinking is over, they turn to promiscuity. Israel, Israel's leaders fervently love disgrace. Ephraim was uh, considered the chief tribe in Israel. Uh, this tribe had the capital city among them. And in verse 17, God says that this place that was kind of the face of Israel in this day, it had become attached to idols. I think uh, this statement was both a physical and a spiritual indicator. It probably referenced the number of physical altars and shrines and and statues and places for false worship among the tribe of Ephraim. But even more significantly, it's probably a reference to the spiritual state of Ephraim because of how prevalent idol worship was among them. This is teaching us another lesson about idolatry and the abandonment of God for the worship of false gods. Idolatry not only leaves us with incomplete joy, but it can also leave us with altered identities. Not only leaves us with an incomplete joy, but it alters our identities. It says Ephraim has become one with their idols. And if we aren't careful to avoid idols, friends, that same thing can happen to us. You idolize your job and your identity becomes nothing more than that of a worker for so-and-so. You idolize your marriage and your whole identity becomes that of so-and-so's husband or so-and-so's wife. You idolize your kids and you become nothing more than their parents. That's, That's all you'll ever be. You idolize your friends, and you're nothing without your friends. You idolize your physical appearance. Well, God forbid something happens that makes you look a way that you aren't pleased with anymore. You idolize food. Well, somebody threatens a meal of yours, and you might lose your mind and actually be led into sin. 
You idolize your, your grades and you end up destroyed if you fail a test. Like the list could go on. So what is it, friends, that in your life you care so much about that it actually robs you of the proper, fulfilling, freeing identity of being a worshiper of God? That's the only right identity to put upon ourselves. Everything else is, is considered wretched infidelity. We're worshipers of God. That's what we were created to be. That's the identity that God created us to have. And if we choose another one, it's wretched infidelity. So what does God respond to Israel's infidelity? Well, he responds with judgment and, and anger and what I'm going to call indignation. God rebukes them and he tells of this coming judgment that will make them regret and be ashamed of their idolatrous ways. At the beginning of chapter five, we see him kind of start to call for the attention of the entire nation again. Hear this priest, pay attention, house of Israel. Listen, royal house, for the judgment applies to you because you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. So God says, Listen up, everybody, especially you leaders who have been like hunters that prey on and trap my people from the mountains that are above them. That was what Mizpah and Tabor was. So the, he says the people are deeply involved in slaughter, and I'm going to punish them. I'm going to punish all of them. Verse 3, I see them. I know them. Their ways aren't hidden from me. They're promiscuous. They, they send themselves into defilement, and their actions do not allow them to return to their God for a spirit of promiscuity is among them, and they do not know the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. Both Israel and Ephraim stumble because of their iniquity. Even Judah will stumble with them. Verse 6, they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but do not find him. He is withdrawn from them. Verses 4 and 6 shows what is probably the most frightening thing about God's indignation. God is withdrawn. And even when the people come to realize that they need to seek him, they seek him, but they can't find him. Verse four tells us that they're not allowed to return to their God because of their actions. And because of this, this spirit of promiscuity that is among them. Well, the question this begs is when the actions stop, can you still not go to God? I want to suggest, friends, that stopping the actions themselves isn't quite enough. It says the spirit of promiscuity is among them, and for that reason, they do not know the Lord. So what we see, friends, is that repentance, this, this act of returning to God, is about more than just our actions changing. It's about our hearts changing. It's about the spirit among us changing. It's about actually feeling and having a second Corinthians seven kind of godly grief about our sin that leads us to hate our sin and then to return to God, not because our flocks need water and we recognize that God is the one who can provide our physical needs, but because our souls need God and we recognize that in him, our needs are met in Christ. Israel didn't recognize this need. I mean, they wanted to return to God because they needed water for their flocks. And so God speaks again of their betrayal. He tells of how it was a generational pattern leading to this ongoing corruption among them. And then he starts to issue serious warnings about this coming era in which he will judge them and wipe them out because of their sin. In verse eight, we see him 
He calls for the blowing of a ram's horn. That is a war cry. It is, is not to be taken lightly. Israel will be punished for their sin. And in verse 10, we see that Judah will be punished along with them. And it's all because they apparently were allowing the sinfulness to be spread among them. So God says, instead of flocks getting water, he's going to pour out fury like water. Verse 11, they're going to be crushed in judgment. Verse 12, God is like rot. He's like decayed to them because of their sin. And then in verses 13 through 15, there's this metaphor of God wounding them and being like a lion who tears them and departs from them. I don't feel the need to unpack all of this because with just a quick skim, you can see that that chapter five lays out before us this great deal of anger and judgment and indignation from God. He is furious and enraged about his people's sin. It says he tears and departs. Verse five screams at us, God hates sin. And that's why hell is a place, by the way, it's because when, when Sin against and oppose such a righteous, holy God, there must be a severe punishment that speaks to the severity of your offense. God says he wounds, he crushes, he's like rot, he's like decay, he tears, and then he departs, and he leaves his people to sit with and see his hatred for their sin. But do you also see the hope that rests there in verse 15? I've been waiting to preach this all morning. I will depart and return to my place. And God deserves praise for this next word right after I say it. Until. Y'all missed it, so I'm going to say it again. See, I think that sometimes in Scripture we can, we can praise God for what we feel is coming. Like, like there, there are these, these gospel truths that are around the corner. You can feel them before you even round the corner. You can start praising God before you walk around the corner and see the gospel truth. I think this is one of those gospel truths. I'm, I'm going to try it again. I'm, I'm, I'm going to read it for us. And, and, and I just want us to, to feel the weight of that word until, because we know that around the corner of until, there's some gospel truth waiting on us. I will depart and return to my place until... Can we give the Lord praise for the fact that there are untils in Scripture, church? Like God puts untils there. We were sinners and dead in our trespasses until. We were estranged from God until. We had no hope in the world. We were lost and, 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 and without any, any guidance and insight of who God even was until. Until what? Well, in this passage, it says, until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. Search for me in their distress. Friends, this shows us that there are consequences for our sin. It shows us that God does withdraw and remove some, some tangibility of his presence when we're living in sin. But it also shows us that all of this, according to hope that God himself has, should bring about the end of us seeing our waywardness, then repenting of it, and returning to God for the right reasons. And here's the beauty, the great beauty of that word until. The beauty is that God desires to see us return. And so through the prophet Hosea, God issues an invitation right here at the beginning of chapter six. Come, let's return to the Lord. For he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us and it will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days, and on the third day, he will raise us up so that we can live in his presence. And verse three has recently become one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. 
they strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He, God himself, will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. And I wish I had time to preach this like I want to. I wish I had a voice to preach it like I want to, too, but I don't today. But, but the thing is this, this invitation that comes through Hosea, it provides us with a snapshot of the hope that we find in the gospel. <clears throat> in spite of our sin that, that leads God to the indignance that we saw throughout chapter five, we can return to him because we have a savior who walks the path toward him before us. Jesus Christ comes and he acts as a bridge between us and our father who withdrew from us in our sin. Hebrews 1 tells us that he is the way we can know God. We look to him and we see God the father and his tearing is our tearing. His being wounded on the cross was our wounding. And then his being dead in a grave for two days was him paying the wage for our sin. But him being raised on the third day is also our raising friends. It's also ours. His healing is our healing. His bound wounds are our bound wounds. Colossians 1.18 says that he is the firstborn from among the dead. And this means that his second birth from death is the second birth that we all experience through him. So even the second birth from death is ours, friends. Like we get to be born again in Christ. There's a reason we use that terminology in the church. It's because he goes and he does all of this before us, for us. That's the Savior we've got in Christ. Torn, yet healed. Wounded, yet having our wounds be bound. And then catch this. The return that he's made to heaven to sit at the Father's right hand, that is our anticipated return that we'll get to, like verse 2 says, live in our God's presence, and we'll be there for all of eternity. So what is it that we walk away from this passage doing in the meantime? We strive to know the Lord through Christ, trusting that our knowing him through Christ makes his presence among us as sure as we expect the next sunrise to be. We got God through Jesus, beloved. Let's pray and give him praise for that. Father, we're glad that we can bank on your presence in this way because we can bank on the finished work of Jesus. We know that he's done for us what we can never do for ourselves. And so in him, there's a return that we get to make. In him, there's healing that we're guaranteed. In him, there are, there's a guarantee of our wounds being bound. Because of him, your appearance to us, the, the thing that our souls long for, for fulfillment, God, we find your word tells us that it's sure, it's as sure as the dawn. We see sunrises each and every day. Father, I pray that when we see suns rise, we remember this verse. That because of Christ Jesus, your presence to us as your people is as guaranteed as the next sunrise. We rejoice in him today. We rejoice that we get to, to celebrate and witness having knowing of another brother who's, who's got this testimony to share. We rejoice and and. and, and and give you thanks that baptism is an ordinance that reminds us that you do make people new, that you do changes from the inside out, that you give us a sure presence, that you give us many guarantees that we relish in and anticipate seeing in fullness 
because of Christ and his work on the cross. So it's in his name that we pray today. Amen.